we are going to zoom forward into the midsection of the tribulation. What's the first thing that comes to your mind, Scott, at, when I say the midterm of the tribulation period? Three and a half years have passed. Three and a half years have passed. We're going to zoom to the three and a half year period in Doris. And the Antichrist breaks the treaty. The Antichrist breaks the treaty, and and uh, what else? What else comes to your mind? Really bad. Things start to get really bad. Yeah, things start to get really bad. And that there are some in end times prophecy that would believe that at the midpoint of the tribulation is when the rapture takes place. There are three views. There is a popular view, a less popular view, and a less mo- and then a, a lesser popular view than that. <laughs> and actually, there are, there are several other views, but they're pretty obscure. But some people would believe, and that's okay that they believe that. I don't believe it's very supportable, but that's okay. That they would believe that the rapture of the church takes place at the middle at the middle point in the tribulation period. Okay. You know where I come down on that. I believe that it is pre-trib rapture, and that's how we have been presenting God's word, because I believe that that's what God's word teaches, although I would love to debate somebody um, and not divide over when the rapture takes place. But last week, we took a look at this Antichrist being revealed uh, after the defeat of the army that invades Israel, right? So there's this coalition that invades Israel and there's quite the war that goes on in Daniel 7.24. And the Antichrist at that point begins to grab power. Because at that particular point, he's already a relatively powerful political figure. And at the point in time where this coalition of armies comes together... Those people that are surrounding Israel, even from the north, which today we would consider to be Russia, but don't get too caught up in that. Um, They are invading Israel and the Antichrist has already conquered three countries. We don't know which ones. We're not told. But we know that there are a total of ten in the region that ultimately will succumb to his power and his pressure. But three of them... He has conquered. So he already is a figure on the political scene. And so these armies that invade, where do they come from? Anybody remember what scripture calls them in Ezekiel? Gog. Gog Gog and Magog. And when we study Gog and Magog, it's very specific in scripture where these places are located. Some of the countries that are identified in Scripture still exist today. Others have been kind of portioned up. You know, they've been fighting over there for a really long time, and they've been dividing up territory for for thousands of years. These people have been fighting one another, and so some of the countries are no longer called what they were called in biblical times, and some of them, of course, have borders that are radically different. That's happened even in our lifetime, hasn't it? And it's been happening for thousands of years. The point is that Gog and Magog are specific uh, locations uh, in that particular region where these armies are going to be assembled and they invade Israel uh, and it'll be a huge army. And who defeats them? God defeats this army. So God himself protects Israel. 
And scripture is very clear that God will be doing the defending and the protecting of Israel. So think about this. And the reason we review is really important to keep this in our head as we see what the progression is sequentially of the things that happen according to this timeline. So God protects Israel. And then after this protection and this defeat of the army where most of the army, and we don't know how many people, but there could be there could be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of people in this army. We don't know. We're told that it will be a big army. And they are defeated. And most of them are killed because they begin to turn on one another. God somehow supernaturally turns them on one another and they begin killing each other. And they even forget what their mission is, that they're trying to wipe out Israel. Isn't that amazing when you stop and think about it? So I don't know, you know, some of you, okay, some of you have military experience and you know what it's like to take orders and you know what it's like to have a plan. And this is usually highly sophisticated people that put these plans together. Well, we're not talking about an event that, that, that happened Thousands of years ago, we're talking about an event that could be happening relatively soon in the near future. We have, we're a sophisticated people, even in the poor countries, even in these countries surrounding Israel. Look at what's happening now. They have, they have uh, tools of warfare, and they have strategic plans, and yet these, these armies are wiped out. Literally, they are killed. And so that's a devastating thing that takes place. And so God is the one that does this in the protection of Israel. And then Jesus himself in the heavenly realms, we're told in Revelation, is the only one, the only one that can open these seals. And he's going to open a scroll with these seven seals. And we looked at these seven seals last week, the sealed judgments. And we see that they are the beginning of God's judgment on what? What is God judging when Jesus breaks the seals of these seven sealed judgments? What is the judgment of God that's going on at this time? He's judging sin and he's judging evil and he's judging it on the earth. Because where is he when this judgment is taking place? Where is the judgment coming from? From God. And where does God live? (laughs) Technically, okay. Technically, um, uh, the father and his son at his right hand, I guess it's his right hand. is sitting there and he is from heaven breaking these seals and these sealed judgments come down and we see that the first sealed judgment of course is is what? The Antichrist coming to make war and to conquer and the seventh seal is removing all the peace from the earth. Not, Not just all the peace from the Middle East. From the world is what scripture says. And then the third seal of course is a famine. And that famine includes food rationing 
And the Bible is so clear about it, it even says that there will be some time, somewhere between eight and ten times a multiplier on whatever the cost of food is, the going cost of food in the region at that time. I'm telling you, there are poor people that can't afford food now. Just think about these things because it's real. And so there are going to be people that are, that are uh, let's say, middle class people that won't be able to afford food. There won't be enough money to buy food. And the famine is horrific. The fourth seal is the, the slaughtering of 25% of the Earth's population. And we looked last week, if the Earth still has around 5 billion people on it, that is 1.5 billion people that will be killed in this judgment. Sobering when you think about it. And then, of course, the fifth seal is the seal of the martyred saints from the past that ask God, when, when, Lord, are you going to take your vengeance and is this, is this judgment going to be over? Because they know somehow these martyred saints are in heaven and they know what's going on on the judgment that that is taking place on earth. And they know what's happening with the evil on earth. And they know what's happening with, with this, the Antichrist being revealed. They know what's happening. Also a sobering thought. That martyrs in heaven are given that opportunity by God. And then being able to understand and see and know what's happening on earth. And then the sixth seal, of course, is a huge earthquake where the celestial beings are, 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 are rocked. The sun and the moon are even affected by the size of this earthquake. Not a regional earthquake. This is an earthquake that affects the world. We've never seen that before. So we don't know what that's like. And then, of course, the last seal judgment, which is the judgment that does nothing more than unleash the next set of judgments, which are the trumpet judgments, that we may even get to this evening. But the church is gone. The church isn't experiencing these things when these judgments take place. Why? Because the rapture has taken place. So the Lord has come for His church, and so the church is not there. But what is still on the earth after the church is raptured Religiously speaking, what is left? There will be some people that come to Christ and come to saving faith in Christ after the rapture. And what other religious activity will there be on the earth at this time? All the non-Christian religions. How many of them? All of them. Yeah, that's not going to change. That's just not going to change. And what else that we mentioned last week is going to be significant on the earth, religiously, at the time, even though the Christians, the church, has been raptured? The false prophet and the sacrificial system and martyrdom and the apostate church. 
you see there are going to be a lot of people that know a lot of religious things, just like in Jesus' day, that will be left. And there is going to be tremendous evil on the earth. That is what is being judged. And that apostate church is going to flourish because at that time, the apostate church, the false church, the false teaching, that that's going on right now around us, and it is prolific in the world, is it not? And that is going to continue, and the Antichrist is going to join up with the apostate church. The Antichrist is not going to join up with the Hindus. The Antichrist is not going to join up with the Buddhists. There will be an apostate church that is trying to replicate falsely the Christian church. And the Antichrist is going to use that as a tool, and we are going to see that. So we asked last week, or I was asked last week, here's the question. The question is, I'm a little confused about the sequence of events and when they're coming exactly. So, I created a slide. Because I'm not very good with graphics. And at the end of the night, if you would like to, I have copies of them here. And so that we can start now, because we're about to enter the midpoint of this tribulation period... I wanted to make sure that it was clear so that we didn't leave anybody behind. Uh, just play on words. Um, so that nobody was confused about what the sequence is. And so if we take a look at the end times when we started this study, we said, are we in the end times? And there was a pretty resounding, yes, we're in the end times. In fact, the, the, the church age, frankly, in Scripture is referred to as the end times. And we've been in the church age now for about how long, Doris? A thousand years. Uh, yeah, a little over that. So just a little after Ernie was born. Is <laughs> but the church age started. And what started the church age, by the way, biblically? What was the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Okay, there was no church. All right, and so Jesus began the church, and we see the whole of the New Testament. We, we, I love the Book of Acts, and so the Book of Acts is all about the early church, and and it's a very important book. And so, um, and so uh, you should read that regularly so that you get a feel for what took place in the beginning of the early church. And so Jesus's resurrection was really the initiation of the end times, and we're told, and there's, these are the scripture references, and I'll give you a handout so you can have them for yourself, for later you can look them up uh, in, your, in your free time, but it's all about trials, troubles, and tribulations, isn't it? That's the end times. We are in the end times. There is absolutely no question, biblically, that we are in the end times. And we know that because there isn't a person sitting here that isn't going through some trials, tribulations, or troubles. And it's getting worse. And there's a debate that relative to is it really getting worse or do we just have more access to media so we just have more reasonable access to what really is going on? No, there are more people on the planet. There is more evil on the planet. And the Bible says it will, be, it, it will become worse and worse and worse. And it even tells us what worse is defined as. So we are in the end times. And then the rapture of the church happens next. 
And we've kind of made a joke about it around here a little bit by saying, see you next week if we're here. And yet, seriously, seriously, you can say that because we may be raptured before we get out of here tonight. There is nothing preventing the rapture of the church from taking place according to Scripture. And we have looked at that over the last few weeks. And there are some Scripture references there to support that. At that time, we will be sitting at the judgment seat of Christ. We looked at the judgment seat of Christ. All believers will be judged. For what? Yeah, the works and deeds while we were here. Just, it's really that simple. What did you do with what I gave you? That's going to be the $64,000 question when we're sitting in front very reverently of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there will also be rewards and loss of rewards. The Bible says that our bucket of rewards is full. And depending on what we choose to do, and if we're lazy Christians, I can, in my mind's eye, this is, this is not biblical, but this is what I see in my mind's eye. In my mind's eye, I see the Lord reaching into, the, into my bucket of rewards and saying, well, I don't think so. He wasn't so faithful there, so i got to take that out. But, he was really faithful with this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that in there. Okay? And so there are rewards that are both in and out of this bucket. Scripture says that the Lord wanna, wants us to have full reward. I like that. So what are we doing with our time and our talents and our treasures? And then the next thing that's going to happen in the heavenly realms, because that's where we'll be, is the marriage of the Lamb to the Bride of Christ. Now, we haven't talked about that yet. What is the marriage? What is the wedding? What, who is the Bride of Christ? These are important questions to answer, and we have to look at that tonight, because that is going to be happening all the while that this judgment is taking place on earth. It's a contrast and a paradox that can't be lost on us relative to what's happening to us in the heavenly realms while this, these events are going on on earth. While that marriage of the Lamb is going on to us, the bride of Christ, the invasion of Israel takes place. And these are all quite concurrent processes. Okay. There may be some time between, the between this, this, this rapture, this invasion, uh, these things we're not told exactly and precisely what the timing is in terms of is there any time in between these events or are they really concurrent? The Bible is silent on that. We know that they're in relatively rapid succession, however, because the Bible says that the time is short. And we know that the tribulation is seven years. We are told that. So after this invasion and God protecting Israel, the Antichrist is clearly revealed because there's a treaty. And then after that, the seven-year tribulation period begins. And we've been talking for the last two weeks about what's happening in this first three and a half years of the tribulation, starting with the judgments that are going on. And we are going to be judged ourselves in the heavenly realms at the judgment seat of Christ and the world is being judged and the evil that is in the world. And we even look at why God has put this tribulation period together. There's a purpose. 
It's not a mystery. We know exactly why God has provided for this tribulation. And it doesn't matter if we like it or not. I don't necessarily like it. It's hard. It even seems harsh. And yet the God that we serve is what? He's holy. We serve a holy God. And so, because of that, we are obedient. And in our obedience, we must accept God's plan. Right? Or we have a choice not to. And if we don't, we would be those people that are on earth when the judgment comes. That's the choice. It's an acceptance or a rejection choice. And isn't that what it generally boils down to? Mm -hmm. Accept or reject. And so the diabiki part of that is, is that we get to accept it on his terms, not ours. And that is indeed what is happening to the church today. The church today is falling in line with separating from diatheke. The church today is, is running rampant on what they want to teach to make people feel good as opposed to the truth. And we just can't do that. There is a falling away that Revelation talks about. And I believe that that's what's happening. I think that that's what we're seeing. Especially in our culture. We're seeing a falling away. And people are no longer reverent towards God. And the Bible is no longer authoritative. And everything is questioned. And nothing is true unless it's true for you. And that's what we've been talking about on Sundays from the pulpit here. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? Falling away from the truth of God's Word. Very dangerous. It's very dangerous. And so this, this period of time where the church is going to be uh, raptured, uh, where are we going to be? <laughs> okay, let's just take a deep breath on that one for a minute. Well, I don't know about you, but being removed from a period of time where there's trials and tribulations and trouble, have you ever noticed that life can be challenging sometimes? <laughs> and then you overlay that and compare it to where we're going. And what God's word reveals to us, that how we're going to live and who's going to be there. Ay, ay, ay. I'm in for that. I'm in for that. In the meantime, in the meantime, what, we have work to do, right, Brenda? <laughs> we have work to do. And so when we're in heaven, there is this, there is this, this wedding of the land that is going to take place. So turn to Revelation 19. The paradox here can't be lost on us because what's happening is, is that we are in heaven. The church is raptured. And while there is judgment that is going on, the sealed judgments are taking place. The Antichrist is, is not quite running amok yet. There is some security in Israel because they're rebuilding the temple at this time. And yet we are in heaven. We don't know how long this takes. But there is going to be a wedding. 
Revelation 19, 7 through 10. If somebody could read that, please. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Mm. That's a powerful, powerful uh, uh, scripture where uh, John is being revealed to him. There's three things that that jump out at me very quickly there. In verse 7, it says that there's going to be a wedding. And in verse 9, it says there's going to be a supper. And then uh, then in in what verse is it, Murph, that it says, write this. Nine. Okay, verse nine. Write this. Okay. Like he wasn't going to? <laughs> he was writing everything else. I don't know. It's kind of like when Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Well, I was pretty convinced that he was telling me the truth every other time he was speaking. But when he says, I tell you the truth, I really perk up. Because he really wants to say something to me. And so, and so the Spirit says, write this. John, while you're sitting out here with nothing else to do. And so this wedding is going to take place. And it says that the bride of Christ is going to be married to whom? The bride of Christ is going to be married to whom? To Christ. How does that work? So the bride is the church. Who is the church? Just oh, okay. There's Richie. There's a Richieism. Okay, that's the Richieism. Put your finger. That's okay. I am the church, and so now we have to take a look at this theologically because I can do this with my finger and say, "Me." I mean, I'm going to be. I mean, that's weird, isn't it, Scotty? Is it weird that you're going to be? You are the bride of Christ. <laughs> Yeah, if, if you have the wrong worldview, it's quite weird. But if you have a biblical worldview, it's quite unbelievable. I mean, it's just, it's amazing, isn't it? You see, because when we get to heaven, there's, what, is it, what does the Bible say? What kind of people are going to be there? Every tribe and nation. Every tribe and nation. Yeah, and we're going to recognize one another. And we're not going to be... Married to sorry guys, you married couples here. There's there's not going to be any marriage, not that kind of marriage. There will be a wedding though, and we will be married all right, and we will have an intimate relationship spiritually with the God of the universe, Christ, and we will be we will be married. And so the bride is the church, we are the church, and so every person. In the church age that has died in Christ will be at this wedding. That's what the Bible says. Who isn't going to be there then? Non-believers. Okay, that's the first group that's not going to be there. Who else won't be there? 
Okay. Who else won't be there? The ones that are going through the tribulation aren't going to be there. Who else isn't going to be there? Devil. And who else? The Antichrist. You're missing one really big group. You give up. Okay. The Jews. It's the Christians that are still on the earth. Yeah, there's one still one big group because I preface this by saying, remember, these are the Christians from the church age. When did the church age start? Okay. The Old Testament saints are not going to be there. They will not be at the, at the wedding of the Lamb. And we're going to see biblically where they come into this. Isn't that interesting? The believers that are raptured in their glorified bodies are going to be in heaven while this chaos is taking place on the earth. I don't know if we're going to know. I don't know that we're not. We're just not told. But I know that there will be glory beyond our wildest imagination and there will be a wedding and then after the wedding there's going to be a feast. And I think we have to understand it this way. When John was, when this was revealed to John, and uh, about what period of time was this in history? Oh, about 90 years after the resurrection. Okay. And so that was a period of time. And there was a culture surrounding this area where this was being revealed to John. And within the context of that culture, there was marriage. And how did marriages take place in that culture at that time? Very different than the way we do it today. <laughs> Celebration and... Uh, People were betrothed to one another. It's really interesting. There were three phases of a marriage contract or covenant, if you will, in the day. And I think that we have to understand the wedding ceremony that will take place with church age believers with everybody else left out for the time being. And we have to think about it this way. In phase one of this process, there's a betrothal period where... Uh, you know, Scott and Susan's daughter is going to be betrothed to this young man and it will be arranged. Hmm. Very foreign to our thinking, isn't it? It was an arranged marriage at the time. And women, of course, were not treated real well. And what else did they do besides betroth or pledge a woman to be married to, to a man? There was a dowry. I, I, I love that. Because I have to tell the story about Joel and I working in Kenya. And one of the guys that we were working with, and his name, you're not going to believe this, but it's true. Um, his name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel... Um, Wanted to, he was motivated, and most Kenyans are not real motivated to work. They're pretty laid back folks. This guy wanted to work and come early. Kenyans don't come to work or anything else early. Okay? They're always late. It's a cultural norm for them. 
this fellow, Ezekiel, was motivated. He wanted to learn. He had never used power tools before. And so Joel and I just went like that with this guy, you know, because, I mean, he was he was interested. And it took a while for us to figure out why. We knew there was something different about him. Well, as we got to know him, we found out that there was this dowry that had to be paid. And in that culture, he wanted to get married. He was betrothed to this girl, who we never met, to be married. And she was a prize. Why? Because she had been to school. So she was an educated girl, and she was a teacher. Now, this is a rare thing in the Kapsawar area of Kenya. And so this was a prized, uh, I hate to use this term, but I will because it's true, possession. In his mind, this was a possession. And he was working hard. Because in Kenya, they make the equivalent of about $2.60 a day. And the day is generally a 10-hour workday. And they work six days a week, 10 hours a day, for the equivalent of $2.60 American uh, uh, today. That's, that's what it is today. And he was betrothed to this woman to marry her and was so excited to come to work every day to earn money because the dowry was two cows, two cows, four sheep. Two cows and four sheep. Now, that sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? But when you understand that in Kenya, and you make $2.60 a day, and a cow costs about $1,200. You can now understand that this man loved this woman and was working his tail off to do everything he could and negotiating with his future in-laws to try to see if he could just get one of the sheep first and then pay it off later. I mean, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. That culture still uses this system where there is a dowry. And then the second phase of this wedding process, biblically speaking, do you remember the story in Matthew about the, about the virgins being ready? Well, what happened was that this betrothal period usually lasted a year, and oftentimes the, the bride and the groom didn't even see each other for that year. But technically and legally, they were married because they were betrothed to one another. And they might not have seen each other for a year, but sometime in the future, the bridegroom is going to come. And when he comes, he's bringing his buddies with him. There will be a procession. And by tradition, it was always done at night. Generally, the Bible says midnight to be specific. And so the bridegroom comes at midnight with a procession. And what did the bride and her attendants need to do? Be ready. They needed to be ready. So it's interesting, isn't it, that there's a betrothal period and a dowry. 
What's the dowry in in uh, in the context of the church being the bride of Christ? Jesus died on the cross and paid for it. Simple as that. It really is simple. The price has been paid. Jesus himself paid the price. See, this wedding has been set up. Before the beginning of time, God knew that we would be sitting in this room. He also knows who is going to be at this wedding ceremony. And that has been arranged because he knows, if you look at it in that context. And then there is going to be this procession, isn't there? There is going to be this period of time where, are you ready? Does that sound rapturous to you? Are you going to be ready? Hmm. Because we're the bride. And we don't know when he's coming. And the Bible doesn't say Jesus is going to come and rapture the church at midnight. But it does say and allude to being ready. So what is it that we are being ready for? What are we being made ready for? To be united with Christ because there is going to be a wedding and he's coming and we don't know when. And so we have to have our lamps ready with oil and we have to have the wicks all trimmed and ready to go because when he comes, we need to be ready. And that's a beautiful picture of of just being obedient. In Matthew 25, 1 through 13, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but that is the parable of the ten virgins. And remember, the the way the story goes is the five of them were ready and five of them weren't. And the five that weren't ready said, hey, will you give us some oil? Because we, you know, we were busy. And I mean, there was movies to go to. And, you know, we, I mean, you know, we got the girls night out on Thursdays. And, you know, we're bowling on Wednesdays. And we didn't have time to get oil. And the wicks in our lamps are pretty short anyway. Could, could you guys give us some of that stuff? Because uh, we understand that the, you know, uh, the groom is coming. And what was the response of the five that were ready? Hey, hey, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. And what's that a picture of? What's that a picture of? The world today. The world. Yeah, see, and here's the unfortunate thing. Churches are going to be filled with people that are left behind. And why? Because they're going to be in the category of the five virgins that were unprepared. They are so casual. If they had any faith at all, they probably didn't. If they had faith, they would be, they would be raptured. But they're, they're going to be surprised. <gasps> Who was it that told me that they were worried about... Um, about the rapture because they went to see that Left Behind movie, the new one, and the, and the, and the clothes were left on the floor. And I was Cindy, was that you, Cindy? And they said, oh, please tell me that our clothes aren't going to be left behind. <laughs> and what was, my re- what was my response, Cindy? No, I, I, think, I think they're going to be left behind because the Bible clearly says that when we are raptured, we will be clothed in white linen that is pure. Righteousness. That's what the Bible says. Now, I don't know if our clothes are going to be left in a pile. Nobody knows how that's going to work. 
But we know that we will be wrapped in righteousness because that's how the Lord sees us now and we will be clothed in righteousness by virtue of that being quite literal. We will be wearing <coughs> pure white linen, which is symbolic for purity and righteousness. A concept that is very difficult for us to grasp because there's nobody in this room, I would guess, that feels completely righteous. And yet the truth of the matter is that God right now as we speak is looking on this group as completely righteous. That is amazing. A lot of contrasts in Scripture, huh? The contrast is that we don't feel that way and yet it doesn't matter what we... It doesn't change the truth. The truth is, is how God sees us. That's what matters. And so ultimately this procession goes to the bridegroom's house and there is a wedding ceremony that takes place at the bridegroom's house. Now generally it's at the bridegroom's house because in that culture, if you, were a, if you were a young man or a young woman, you didn't go off and get an apartment someplace. You stayed at home until you were married. That's the way it worked. And so you ultimately, if in our society, if you were a bride, you would go to the bridegroom's parents' house where the wedding ceremony would take place. That's where they did it. And so they didn't have churches. They didn't, they didn't do it like we do it now. And so this is a picture that we get of what's going to happen. The church is raptured. We go to heaven. There is a wedding that takes place. And we are married. <clears throat> Ooh, that has some both positive and negative connotations if we look at it, depending on our worldview. Okay? And that is a marriage that can never be broken because that's the covenant. Okay? And so that marriage ceremony takes place and it is the church age saints that are married to the Lord Jesus Christ at that time while all this chaos is going on on the earth. And then after that there is, according to verse 9, there is a supper. What is the supper? What is the marriage or wedding supper? Anybody remember from reading scripture? It's a full-on celebration. Thank you, Doris. It is the celebration that takes place after the wedding ceremony. Now, in biblical times, the way that worked, and, and this also sounds crazy because it's, it's, it's foreign to us in the way we do things, but at the time, the bride and the groom would go and they would separate themselves from all the guests that were at the wedding. And they would go and they would consummate this marriage. And sometimes they would be there separated and alone for days before they came out. Okay? And then when they came out, then the wedding feast began. And the interesting thing about the wedding feast, we even see Jesus. The first miracle he performed was at a wedding feast. And they ran out of wine. Why? Because it was a full-on party. It was going down for a long time. And they ran out of wine. And Jesus, you know, you know the story. Okay? He turned that water into wine and it was the good stuff. Just the opposite. <laughs> Everything in Jesus' life was the, just the opposite of what we all think. 
just backwards to what we think. And so this wedding took place, and then the celebration went on, and it generally went on for days. Quite an event. It wasn't a Saturday afternoon in Ojai, and then we're off doing our thing. That's not the way a wedding took place in these times. And that is the picture that we have from John the Revelator in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Revelation when he talks about this wedding that is going to take place between the bride of Christ and Jesus himself. So the marriage has been arranged, the dowry's been paid, the bride was ready. Okay, The reason I say the bride was ready because now I'm talking... Uh, real time in terms of the rapture. The rapture's already taken place. The bride's there. So for everyone that is a bride of Christ that was ready, they're there. The scary part is the ones that think that they're a bride that are going to be ready, but they weren't. And they're going to know. There won't be anybody that doesn't know. Anybody with any church background at all is going to know. That's a little heavy, isn't it? That's a little heavy. And I don't say that to make us question whether we're ready, but we should question whether we're ready. <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is, what does that look like? Because you only have to do one thing. Put your faith in Christ. You're ready that's it. That's it. That's the, that's the gift. Because you don't have to work for it. You can't work for it. Putting your faith in Christ means you are ready. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. There are others that are invited to this wedding. The others are invited to this wedding. So think about it in the timeline, because right now we're, we're engaged in a timeline in history. It's future. History can't be future, but we're looking at it like it is. We're looking at this timeline because the rapture's already taken place and this wedding has taken place and only the church saints are there. The church saints have had a wedding. But what about the Old Testament saints? And what about those that are... Steve, those that are... Going through the tribulation, there are, there are saints, there are people that are coming to Christ. In fact, we looked last week that there are a bunch of them being martyred. They are being killed for coming to faith in Christ. But they're not at this wedding. Interesting. So where are they? Not me outside looking in. <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing. Because it is the church that has been raptured. Alright, put your thinking caps on them now. And let's just use common sense. The church has been raptured. And is in the heavenly realms. And is married as the bride to the bridegroom. That is Christ. This event has taken place. The Bible is clear. And it has completely left out the tribulation saints. Well, because some of them aren't saints yet. And the Old Testament saints. They're not there. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Just using common sense. Waiting for the second resurrection. Waiting for the second resurrection. 
Here's the thing. It's really interesting. You see, the Bible is clear. When the church is raptured, there are some of us that are going to be going to heaven before we die, if it happens before we die. Okay? And if we die, we're going to be with the Lord immediately anyway. And when the rapture takes place, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. And now we're not going to take a look at this in too much depth tonight theologically, but we will later because it's on the timeline. And we will see that the Old Testament saints are invited to this wedding and they come to glory if in their resurrected bodies at a different time than the church. And they are invited in, Scripture says, and we will look at this in detail later, they are invited in and become the wife of Christ. It is, it's, it's amazing when you study and see how many Scripture references there are that bring these two groups, groups of believers, Old Testament saints and tribulation saints, that don't have the same opportunity that the church age saints had in terms of coming together in the heavenly realms and being married to the bridegroom, which is Christ. It happens at separate times. All right. Show of hands. How many are just totally familiar with that? <laughs> Isn't it interesting? It's fascinating. And I have to admit to you that I am, uh, uh, you know, I've been a student of the Bible for a long time. And, uh, and I love scripture. And uh, thanks for the note. And um, I, I learned this recently. Because until you go in depth, you don't know what you don't know. How can you know what you don't know? And the Bible is rich, and it is deep, and it is fantastic. And there is so much that a full-on study of the end times revealed this to me. Because God spoke through Scripture. I didn't know. First to admit, I didn't know. But, but it's about fascinating. The people that never knew, the people that never got exposed to the Word of God and learned about God. It's the, it's the same issue, Teresa. The same issue is that there are those that don't even know the real gospel message. The simplicity of the, of the fact that this is a fallen world. And, and there is an eternity. And there is a Savior. And... Uh, and, and there is, because if there's a Savior, there is salvation. Isn't it amazing that, that people, that I'm, there are people in this community that haven't ever really investigated that. Oh, they might have heard about it on the periphery, but their heart is so hardened to it that they never really took the time. Never really took the time. And the Bible is like that. And so as Bible students, we can go into Scripture and we and God will reveal things that are just amazing. And, and I, I would submit to you that if you started studying the Bible full time right now for the rest of your life, you can't even begin to broach the depth and the breadth of what God could reveal to you. You can't. It's impossible. There is so much depth to the Word of God and the beauty of the Word of God. And of course, I believe that He designed it that way. But you didn't answer her question. 
I'm really good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Ask it again, Teresa. That that have never heard and didn't have a way of hearing. Native people, people that never got exposed, that never had a book or never heard the word. Have you been looking at my notes? Let's talk about that. Remember I lived in the jungle. That's right, you did live in the jungle. Let's talk about that. Because there is a there is in scripture we have what is called the Great Commission, right? What did Jesus tell us to do? Okay, Scotty, I'm gonna give it I'm gonna let you say it. He says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make disciples, which means that we have to go share the gospel, which means that every person on the planet has to hear the gospel. And we also know that the Bible also tells us that God has revealed himself through what? Nature. Nature even. But we're going to see something tonight. I'm going to answer that question. Oh, this is perfect. I'm going to answer that question because while all of this is going on, (laughs) no, no, that's okay. While all of this is going on, we got this wedding that's going on, the church and the church age. Uh, uh, believers are united with Christ uh, in the heavenly realms. I mean, it's a it's a picture. It's a beautiful thing. Remember the the series on heaven that we did a couple of years ago. Just imagine that there is this there is this this marriage in heaven uh, with Jesus, the one that we've been waiting for. Okay, and our crowns have been have been given to us. We've had rewards, and we've been reunited with those that we haven't seen for a long time, and we're being. We're communicating with folks that that uh, that we only read about in the book because it's written, and we're going to meet them. They're going to be there, not yet, because the Old Testament saints aren't there yet. But question? Yeah, I have a question. I'm confused now. Okay. Wait. Talks about the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Mm-hmm. Right? Which we will get to. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Mm -hmm. So, if you're talking about the first resurrection with the people who have died, which people who have died? Church age. The church age people who have died. That's correct. It's all about the church age. And so, this church age period that we're talking about, from the resurrection of of Jesus Christ until, until if the rapture happened in the next five minutes. Everybody in that period of time and nobody else. The Bible is very clear about that. And so those are the people that are going to be raptured with, uh, um, with their glorified bodies in the presence of the Lord. And, and the others come later. And we're going to get to that come later part. And we'll, we have to support that biblically. Okay? And we will look at that biblically to support that. And there is another resurrection that takes place. And there is another quasi-wedding that takes place. And we will look at the biblical references for that because it's important. But right now we're talking about the church age saints. St. Teresa. Okay. What about all of our grandchildren? How old do they have to be if we haven't been able to get to them? And their parents won't let us grab them and talk to them about Christ. We don't know. We have a lot of discussion about the age of accountability, and yet the Bible says nothing about the age of accountability. So we don't know how old we have to... We have to trust God on that. We have to trust God. So I'm assuming it's when they start school and they're starting to learn, they should be able to be... 
at the age of accountability, I would think. I think it's hard to make assumptions and speculate about that only because we're not told. And so we have to understand that God is in complete control and he is just and he is holy and he is righteous. Mm -hmm. And he's got that under control. So it doesn't say... It doesn't say. He didn't give that information to us. But what did he give to us in terms of people that perhaps haven't heard? While this is going on, this marriage is going on, there's a lot of chaos that's going on on the earth, and yet God has a plan. And so what does he do? He institutes a group of people that are going to go forth and are going to share the gospel. Why? So everybody has a chance because the church is gone. We're gone, Brenda. We're in heaven. And so this marriage has taken place. I don't know how long. It, I don't know what the time period is. We're not told that. But these 144,000 people, God's word calls us to understand, are appointed by God. And I think that there are those that would disagree with me that believe that there is a spiritual component to this. Clearly, there's a spiritual component to it. But I believe that where you can interpret the Bible literally, you have to interpret the Bible literally. And the 144,000 people in Scripture are not Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> because, I mean, if you're, I mean, I'm seriously, I, I don't mean this with any disrespect at all. I, I you know. From a, from a theological point of view, uh, the Watchtower Society early on said that there would be 144,000 people in heaven and they would all be Jehovah's Witnesses. The problem was in about 1935 or so that the size of the church eclipsed the 144,000, so they had to change their doctrine and said, well, it's really only the first 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses and they're going to go to heaven and everybody else is going to be on paradise on earth. And so, I mean, it, 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 it is interpretation... Uh, and manipulation of Scripture at its worst, at its absolute worst. But but then we know that, and we should pray for them because that's not the that's not the truth. So Revelation seven one through eight, please turn there. What they read, please. After that, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. That's good. Read them nope. Just nope. Just let's, stop. let's stop there. Revelation 7, 1 through 4 tells us that John saw these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth and, and then he saw another living angel that came up out of the east who had had the seal of the living God. And we're going to see more about the seal of the living God because during the tribulation period this becomes very important because there's two kinds of seals in the tribulation period. 
only two kinds of seals in the tribulation period. One of them allows you to live, and the other one is a death sentence. And the death sentence is the seal of the living God. Because we're going to see in the second half of the tribulation period when the restrainer is removed from the earth and, and sin is allowed to take on its full power and Satan has full run that without the seal of the Antichrist, you either are going to have that seal or you are going to make a decision for Christ and become a tribulation saint and then ultimately be in heaven at the, at the and, and there will be a wedding for you and you will, be, uh, you will be a bride of Christ also at a later time, but you will be martyred. You will be killed. Not every one of you. I don't mean that. I mean that euphemistically, you. Um, but th that is what is going to be dangerous about these seals. If you take on the seal that is being referred to here, it is a death sentence because you won't be able to buy anything or sell anything, and we're going to see that a little bit later. But, but what John saw was he saw these people, and it was noted to him that there were 144,000, all from the tribes of Israel. We're told that they are from 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Now, this is a study in and of itself, and we can go into all kinds of interesting things, why the, why the tribe of Dan is missing in one, one account, and, and there are some interesting theological debates, but for our purposes... Um, I believe that we have to take this literally, that there are literally 144,000 Jews that come to Christ and are absolutely protected by God so that they cannot be killed. God protects them just like he protected Israel during this, during this invasion. Supernaturally, God intervenes in these 144,000. Remember, there's going to be about 5 billion people on the earth at this time. And there are 144,000 Jewish, we would call them today, Messianic Jews, Jews that come to Christ that are saved, that are instruments of God that are going to be used to spread the gospel message throughout the United States, throughout the Asia, throughout everywhere. That's what's going to happen. That is who God is going to use. Now, with all due respect, we have to deal with people that would believe that if you're a covenant theologian, which I would respect, and I would have to respectfully disagree with, um, or if you are a remnant theologian, and I would respectfully have to disagree with that particular theological position, but I think we could, we could certainly debate it. I have no issue with that, and it's always interesting and challenging to do. But I believe that this to be a literal number of Jewish converts that God is going to use to share the message in the absence of the church. Revelation 7.4 says... That they were sealed. These 144,000 men, according to scripture, were sealed. What does it mean biblically to be sealed? Protected. Okay. What was the word? Safe. To be kept safe. It's like us. We've been, uh, we've been safe. That's right. 
It's a very interesting thing because there's a sealing that takes place in our life too, isn't there? Okay. And who are we sealed by? Yeah. There is a sealing that takes place. These 144,000 evangelists, if you will, are sealed by God. They are protected from the Antichrist and what is going to be taking place. They have the mark of God, but they are not going to be marked. Not initially. Matthew 24, 14, and you don't have to turn there, says this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And it's a clear reference that Jesus is speaking there, that in the end times, there is going to be a group of people that are going to share the gospel message throughout the whole rest of the world because the church is missing. The church is gone. Jesus is telling his disciples about the end times here and these 144,000 bond servants. And it says in Revelation 14, 3. It says in Revelation 14, 3. That they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What is redeemed? Paid for, yeah. I always think of green stamps. <laughs> they were redeemed. Just like Richieism, me, redeemed. The price was paid. See, they've been redeemed, these 144,000. That's why I believe it's quite literal. It's not a spiritual connotation to this. These are literal people, I believe. Scripture teaches. They've been redeemed. They've been purchased by the blood of Christ just like you and I. In Revelation 7, 3, it says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the bond servants of God. These 144,000 are bond servants of God. Raises a question. What is a bond servant? One that's been bought. That's good. What else? Some of them Servant. Agreed to stay with their masters when they were free. Oh, perfect, Doris. You see, a bond servant is like a slave that volunteers. Isn't that interesting? So that the term that is used in the original language that we translate to bond servant <coughs> means that these 144,000 said, Yep, I'll do it. Yep. Send me. Think about it. There are horrific things that are taking place on the planet at this time. And God chooses these 144,000, 12 from each tribe of Israel. And he says, I'm going to use you. And they all say, okay. And they're going to get the mark. They're going to know that the mark is a death sentence. I don't know if God tells them, but don't worry, I'm going to protect you. It doesn't say that he tells them that. It, he tells us that he's going to protect them. I don't know what they know. I just know that they're going to have the mark of God, which is a death sentence to everybody else. And yet God is going to protect them, not only from the, from the judgments, the seal judgment, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments that are coming. He's going to protect them from all that the Antichrist is going to be doing, which is being, what is the Antichrist? What's, what's his purpose? What's his primary purpose? Destruction, war. He wants to wipe out the Jews. 
Israel, God's chosen people, and everybody else that he can. And yet these 144,000, by choice, they are protected. So these evangelists are going to proclaim the word of God. That's what they're going to do. And they're going to be doing it in a, in a, in a condition where they are protected. They're going to have the mark of God, and they're going to be able to finish the job, if you will. Finish the job that the church was unable to finish because it was raptured. It's a really interesting discussion when you stop and think about the biblical references that no man has excuse. And it says in the New Testament, no man has excuse. Look out your window. I don't know how you can go backpacking in the Sierras and say, ah, that just happened. Yeah. I don't know how you can do that. Well, there was an explosion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, from some single cell, all of this just sort of morphed. I, I, I mean, it takes a lot more faith to believe that than it does to believe that God created it. Even in these areas where we might have theological uh, discussions and, and differences, uh, perhaps, that's okay. It's okay. What chapter and verse are you referring to for the 144,000 going out and preaching? I'm starting in Revelation... Um, seven. All of Revelation chapter 7. I don't see any preaching in 7. Well, we'll we, can, we can get there. We can get there. In 14, there were the only ones that could sing the song. Verse 3, it says they will prophesy for 12,000. We see that the 144,000 are sprinkled in and through Revelation through chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm happy to go through that as we look at what their purpose is and how God is going to use them. And it's going to be quite similar, frankly, to how he is going to use the two witnesses because we have to deal with the two witnesses of God as well. And these two witnesses of God <coughs> during the tribulation are raised up by God and if we look at Revelation 11, 1 through 6, it says this. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 42 months. Verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Incredible power that these two witnesses are given by God. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. These two witnesses have incredible supernatural power during this tribulation period. And what are they doing? 
Revelation. Preaching. They're preaching. Revelation 11 continues to tell us in verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit in the tribulation period. But we're going to see that these two witnesses are preaching... And they are using supernatural power that is given to them by God. And Teresa, to answer your question, we don't know exactly how. But we are told that the preaching and the evangelizing that is taking place at this time reaches the far corners. According to Revelation. And we know that they're finished with their testimony. And we also know that that is from the Antichrist's point of view, an abomination because he doesn't want to hear anything about God. There's not as many people around as there were. That's correct. It's because a quarter of the total population is all that's existing at that time. At that, by the time this happens, we, will, we are going to see, because we're going to look at the next, thank you for that, we're going to look at these next plagues that come. And so we already know that there has been war. We know that at the one time in the seal judgment, that 25% of the earth at one time was annihilated. Well, that's 1.5 billion people if we have 5 billion people on the planet when that takes place. So making that assumption... But they're still going okay. to spread all around the world. And they're still going to be spread all around the world. But we also know that in the second half of the tribulation period, because the Antichrist comes to conquer and destroy, there will be war and there will be killing. And it, we're going to see in these judgments that are coming up, it, it will be consistent. And remember, this is a very short period of time. There is a lot of death and destruction. It's a pretty horrific period. And you're absolutely right. There will be fewer people. Clearly, there are, go there are going to be people that are dying and it will be massive. It will be massive. There will also be people coming to Christ. And it will be incredible. Because we're going to see next week when we take a look at the people that are coming to Christ during this time that it's going to cost them their life for the most part. They're going to see Christ revealed through the testimony of not only the two witnesses... But the other evangelists, and they're going to make a decision for Christ and get the mark of God, and it's going to cost them. Like we've never seen. The Antichrist ultimately kills these two witnesses that are appointed by God, according to Revelation. God appoints them. And then the Antichrist actually kills them. And the fascinating thing is if you read through the rest of Revelation 11... Uh, starting at about verse 11, that after three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them and they stood on their feet and the terror struck those who saw them. They had been laying in state dead for three and a half days and then God breathed life into them and they're raised, these two witnesses. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it is that then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. While their enemies looked on. Sound familiar? It's really interesting that these two witnesses that really are evangelists, and we don't know who they are, although there's all kinds of speculation that it could be Moses, it could be Elijah, it could be Enoch, because there's at least a couple of guys that are in heaven with God right now that didn't die. And so we could speculate all day long if we want to, but that's not what Scripture tells us to do. It's, it's interesting to think about, but we can't speculate about it because we can't put into God's mouth anything that he hasn't revealed to us. We just can't. 
We can argue a little bit about how we're interpreting Scripture, perhaps, and on the things that are non-essential, we can debate over them, and we don't necessarily have to agree. You've heard Richie say that there are a few things that we don't agree about, and that's okay. We don't have to agree on every single thing. We absolutely have to agree on everything that's essential. There's no question about it. Or one or the other of us shouldn't be here. (laughs) So we're not told who they are. Suffice it to say, we're told that they're going to be here for three and a half years. We know that. And we know that God gives them this supernatural power. And we know that they're going to be here during the second half of the tribulation period. We're pretty sure that they're going to be here during the second half of the tribulation period. Because really that's when everything is going to start breaking loose. Because the Antichrist really comes into his own at that period of time, which is the three and a half year point of the tribulation, where the Bible describes it as being the abomination that causes desolation and and. and Many of us know what that is. What is that? The abomination that causes desolation in Daniel 12. Anna? The Antichrist. Okay. The Antichrist, and specifically what about the Antichrist is the abomination that causes desolation? He goes into the temple and declares himself God. Amen. What happens is, is that during this first part of the tribulation period, there's relative peace, even though there's all this chaos. Somehow, somehow... God has carved out this period of time for Israel and protected them, and they have been allowed to rebuild the temple. <clears throat> the sacrificial system is in place. Revelation is very clear. The, the Jews bring the sacrificial system back into, it's back in vogue. Uh, that's what they're doing. And so at that point, the Antichrist, who has been what? Conquering? He has been conquered. He's not been quiet for the first three and a half years. He's been active. And that's a whole study in and of itself in terms of what he is doing during this period of time. But again, suffice to say for now that that he has conquered and he has power at this time. And he goes into the temple and sets himself up to be God. Verse 11 in Daniel 12 says, From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. These timeline studies in Scripture are also very interesting. Because if we look backwards on the timelines, it's fascinating that the prophetic writings of, of the Old Testament, we can see in Scripture that they took place when... Not only have they taken place, but we're given a pretty good idea of when they took place and that all of Scripture ties together. There's no contradiction on the timelines. We can debate sequence. So when I share with you sequence, not everybody has to agree on the sequence of events that we're talking about here in the course of, of this tribulation period. But there are such minor differences that it, it frankly, it doesn't make that much difference. The areas where we have differences in in the sequential nature of these things that take place during the tribulation. But we know that the abomination that causes desolation is caused from the Antichrist going into the temple and desecrating the temple. It's a very holy place, is it not, to the Jews? I mean, it is like the Holy of Holies to the Jews. And he goes in and he stops the 
sacrificial system from taking place and then he decides that he is going to break the covenant of peace with Israel. He goes back on the deal that he made with them. Remember, he is a very powerful man during this period and he's gaining more power all the time. Three and a half years into the tribulation, he sets himself up to be God. He proclaims himself to be God. And then and then he appears. We saw this during last week or the week before. We see that Revelation gives us a pretty clear indication that the Antichrist either is violently killed and raised from the dead by Satan himself. We're not sure. Because there are other scripture references say that it appears as though he was dead. But I know this. The Bible is very clear that the Antichrist deceives many. And many believe that he has arisen from the dead. Whether he did or he didn't is not material, frankly. Because people believe it. And he begins to get a following that scripture says includes... The whole world. It is no longer a following that is regional. Revelation 17:8b says, "The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it was." It was not, and yet will come. That's loaded. That is a scripture that is absolutely loaded that talks about the Antichrist being and not being and then being again. At this world, the whole point is amazed, or the whole world is amazed. And then Revelation 13:3b says that of the heads of the beast, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. But the fatal... See that word seemed? Seemed to have had a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. The point is, the whole world was amazed. And there's a lot of supernatural things that are going on here. And... Satan and the Antichrist are just about to be released and the world is going to worship this Antichrist and then the Great Tribulation is about to begin. And why do we call it the Great Tribulation? It's really interesting because the Bible calls it both. There's the Tribulation and the Great Tribulation. The Tribulation period of seven years is still the Tribulation. But the Bible makes reference to the second half of the tribulation as being the great tribulation. There's much, much debate about what that really means. But for most commentators, they would suggest, and I would, I would accept this, that the great tribulation is the second half of the tribulation where things are really, really horrific. Because if those that survived the first three and a half years of tribulation period with all of these judgments from God... And the, the, uh, what is revealed to us in terms of the Antichrist's activities during this period, um, uh, they ain't seen nothing yet. They just ain't seen nothing yet. 
and it's it's hard. It's hard to study. It's hard to teach. It's it's hard to it's it's hard to accept. It's it's um, uh, and yet it's true. And yet it's true. And so uh, next week when we start in Revelation 13 and we take a, take a look at this beast and what starts to happen in the second half of the of the Revelation and uh, and, and we'll and we'll get to the 144,000. We'll deal with that issue. And we'll see what happens during the second half, and we'll see that the trumpet judgments are 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 released, and when the trumpet blows, what happens next? And we'll see what the Antichrist does, and we'll see how tough it is. And you're going to have an appreciation for a tribulation saint, believe me. By the end of next week, you are going to have a real appreciation for a tribulation saint because we've got it so easy. We 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 are we are comfortable. I would submit to you that we're even lazy. We're, we're even lazy, and uh, and that's not even easy to say. And, and I would I would project that onto myself, not you, because as I study and I see what is going to be required to come to Christ in the tribulation period, I have to ask myself the, the real hard question: Would I do that? Would I come to Christ 